Hello and welcome to Wine Blast. I'm Susie Barry and I'm here as ever with my husband and fellow Master of Wine, Peter Richards, who I'm slightly disappointed to say is not wearing his Christmas jumper. Where's it gone? It's true. It's not here. Um, so for those of you who caught the video of our last episode, we can exclusively reveal that I have now taken off my Buddy the Elf hoodie at long last. Peeled it off. Uh, it was a little bit like that, wasn't it? Um, it was, <laughs> it's about five sizes too small. I'd like to say it's the jumper that's too small rather absolutely. than me getting too large. absolutely is. Oh, thank you. Thank absolutely. you. I was fishing for that one. I yeah, was angling yeah. for it. I'm glad thank we clarified it. Let's just move on quickly. Important, we, important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, it, but it, was, it was good fun, wasn't it, doing it our first Really Wine Blast Live. We enjoyed it. Yeah, so it we was, hope it, you guys enjoyed it as much as we did because it was, well, we had I a bit of a laugh. we enjoyed making it a bit too much to be <laughs> honest. The video and the podcast anyway, Listen, the feedback was good. Let's just take it um, and we're going to be yeah. doing more of those yes, thank you, short formats with videos in due course. We, you have we are warned. actually. So, you know, do send us in your wine questions or fun challenges for us to do. Um, we think that format will work really well for that kind of thing. Uh, we can't promise we'll always look as silly as we did in the last one. Let's Sorry. not. Uh, but we will definitely try to make it entertaining, uh, you know, however, however we can do that and, and also make it brief. Yeah, we, d- we did achieve that, which is extraordinary, wasn't it? Oh, it's rare for us. Yeah, well, we did it. We did it. On which note, we should get on with this show. That's and true. this one is all about wine investment. Um, mm. We've had quite a few questions and suggestions about investing in wine for the podcast. Yeah. So it's definitely been a subject we've been meaning to look at for a while yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then recently, the Ueno group got in touch to say they'd be interested in collaborating on an episode. So that is what we've done. The plan came together, didn't it? So yeah, it this is a sponsored episode with Ueno, which is spelt O-E-N-O, just to be clear. Uh, they are a relatively new and definitely ambitious fine wine company based out of London uh, with a strong emphasis on wine investment. So it all made sense. You know, uh, I was lucky to uh, pop in recently to try the 1995 board first gross there actually, as you do as it happened as you do go <laughs> on then fun. which was the best oh let, um, let us know reveal all Lafitte oh. yeah it mm. was just so pure and glorious and fantastic um, some of them were looking a little bit tired Ooh. dare I say it Gosh. maybe going through a dumb phase but anyway Lafitte mm. was glorious and Margot second for me there you go top tip there what to are. buy next your bit of Lafitte all your, all your 95 first gross your purchasing this weekend <laughs> exactly <laughs> anyway we're going to explain a bit more about Oeno's background in a moment but um, you can find out more on their website oenogroup.com uh, or get in touch directly at info at oenofuture.com and here is a very brief taster of what is to come you can actually get somewhere between 10 to 15 percent return on investment when everything is solved. Punchy stuff. Mm, yeah. I think particularly if your bank is paying you kind of naught point naught 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 two percent interest yeah. like most of them are at the moment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But um, before we dive into all of this, we should, I think, take a moment now to consider the wider context of wine investment. So we're talking about a very niche field, aren't we? We um, are, yeah. Fine wine or, or, you know, so-called investment grade wine is probably... I don't know, about 1% of, yeah. of, of the wine market at the very top end. Yeah, yeah. Investment grade wine, fine wine, you know, it's wine that has a track record for gaining in value over time. Significantly. Um, yeah. And the classic example, you know, would be top red Bordeaux, I suppose, which is famous for aging predictably well over time um, and has enough volume to be traded mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the sort of classic marker. Yeah. And I know, you, uh, to be honest, you can argue that the, the field of 
proactive wine investment with the with just the sole aim or or main aim of making money is actually a relatively recent phenomenon. Mm. No, that's true. Um, and it's happened as wine has, for better or worse, started moving into the luxury goods territory mm. um, with quality and consistency improving and auction houses and merchants getting involved. Yeah. Um, even more recently, though, the COVID-19 era seems to have been a massive boost. You know, wine investment has does, gone crazy mm. as people have piled into fine wine and that's been both during and actually continued after the lockdown. Yeah, and it's continuing now, but from, from what it seems, you know, and it's definitely made it into the headlines, hasn't it? I don't know it if has, you guys have, have seen it. We've certainly uh, seen it cropping up quite a lot. What was the one we saw recently? It was wine beats scotch and Hermes bags as top luxury investment, was, mm. that's from The Guardian. Uh, have I said Hermes? Hermes, right Hermes, yeah. I don't say Hermes very often. <laughs> you need to say it more often. Yeah, well. Practice. You know, there's a lovely <laughs> shop. I think it's in Bond Street. You just go in and say, <laughs> yes, is this Hermes? Christmas, I would love Christmas a present, Hermes. Really why I try Bracelet, to avoid saying scarf, it as much bag. as possible. Um, anyway, that uh, that uh, article was citing data from Knight Frank's Luxury Investment Index. Sounds like an intriguing thing, doesn't it? Um, which said investment-grade wine had risen 13% in value in the year to the end of June 2021, whereas over the same time frame, watches had gone up 5% and cars 4%. Watches. So not as much. Watches, mm. who knew? I know, watches. Yeah. Actually, though, I hear Lego is a popular investment <laughs> too. Yeah, that's also true. But that may be for another podcast. I think that's another time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, this trend trend is is quite heavily discussed mm. um, and there's evidence for it, frankly, all over. Yeah. And we've got some figures here. The LiveX 100 um, is US an Vegas. index of top investment wines that goes back to 2001. Mm. Now, it closed October 2021 on an all-time high um, and the summary read... In its first two decades, the LiveX 100 has increased 272%, survived three global financial crises and returned more than the S&P 500, which is is nothing to do with our... um, S&P, that's our, us. Our wine collection. Our 500 rating. No, it's, it's, uh, it's the US stock market gauge, isn't it? One of the gauges of the US stock market. I think it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But in, and in terms of more recent figures, um, 2021 saw new records set for fine wines, the fine wine secondary market, mm. um, with wine outperforming gold and mm. the FTSE 100, which is mm. the British share index. Um, again, that, that all comes from LiveX. Yeah. So then, you know, there are plenty of reports of how people are not only spending more on fine wine since the pandemic, Again, but also buying wine primarily for investment purposes. So this is a trend on the up. Mm. You know, so-called alternative investments seem to be becoming more popular, probably partly as a hedge against volatile equity markets and historically low interest rates. And I do wonder if there's not an element of life's too short for like boring investing in boring stuff or what mm. might be perceived as boring stuff. I don't know. Um, yeah. You know. Um- I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure that wine's quite as racy as cryptocurrencies, though, is it? <laughs> no, it's Surely. not. But maybe that's too racy for some of us. <laughs> anyway, but the other thing that we've been looking at, we, we, you know, you, you often see headlines like the one um, we saw recently in the Times Money, which which read, and I quote, I made 500000 from investing in fine wine. <laughs> yeah, that definitely caught yeah. our eye, didn't it? That's a lot of money to make, isn't it? Yeah. Um, anyway, the story was of, of this chap called Chris Ballard, who he started with um, what we could only be described as an admirable calculation, that given his wife and he were drinking a bottle of Bordeaux pretty much every day, he needed 350 per year. So in order to drink 10-year-old wine, which he wanted to do, he needed 3,500 bottles. Love it. I love that calculation. (laughs) I mean, that is what I call a proper 
10-year plan. No, that's proper life planning. <laughs> anyway, so, so Chris started collecting wine and he put £30,000 into En Primeur Bordeaux in 1990, mm. I think it and, was. And we should just say, En Primeur, just to clarify, is buying the wine before it's bottled. Um, you do this for a couple of reasons. Traditionally, the deal was you got the wine at a good price in return for buying it in advance and, and bankrolling the producer's next vintage. You know, And in some cases, where the wine's made in really small productions, it could also mean you get access to the stock before it sort of sells out or it becomes unavailable on the market. Mm. Anyway, at some stage, Chris was asked if he wanted to sell a case back Mm. and he realised he could almost double his money in five years. So mm. this was from his his initial investment, his mm. initial dabbling. Um, so he he started, though, this to take a real interest. Uh, he mm. read all the journals, all the key journals, kept notes of critics' scores, monitored market prices. Um, yeah, it's all pretty easy to do, isn't it, that stuff? It you, is. You know, it's stuff anybody could do. Yeah. Um, anyway, over 25 years, he has invested more than £4 million and he's apparently made 500000 mm. um, wow. And he also says, which is probably our favourite bit about this whole thing, I have drunk a significant amount along the way too. <laughs> but didn't Good he also, on you, Chris. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That's the right approach. Didn't he, didn't he say something about things um, not going so well as well? Though? Yeah, I mean, he, he admitted that that had happened and, mm. and that you need you just need to be prepared for that. You know, mm. He talked particularly about the, the market collapse in 2011 um, after the financial crisis in 2008 and then the market overheating following the, the 2009 and 2010 yeah, vintages, the Live X100 dropped 30%. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's a big you've got to hold your yeah. nerve, haven't you, yeah, with that? That's, that's uh, but he happened. didn't lose he says he didn't lose out because he's he said, because I hung on to the wine and he's actually started now to to sell it. Mm. Um so and mm. his holdings just for interest, so you kind of get a picture of, of what he's got, um, are sixty percent Bordeaux and then forty percent Spanish, Italian and Argentinian. Mm. Mm. So he was patient and actually yeah. worked out. And I imagine all red wine there. Um, yeah, probably probably mostly, yeah. So, Imagine. I mean, we wanted to ask the savvy people at Oeno about all this and more. Um, but just to preface their business, Oeno was founded in 2015 with the self-stated aim to uh, make the fine wine market accessible to all investors. Um, it's expanded significantly lately um, and it's attracted a host of, of, of well, I think, what we can describe as, as both wine and financial talent mm. into its ranks, isn't it? From masters of wine to former City traders, um, and it now has offices in London, Madrid, Bordeaux, Tuscany, New York, and Munich. And apparently, there are plans for Miami soon too. Mm, yeah. Now, so, so just to explain, the the group comprises three main arms. So you've got Oeno Future, which focuses on fine wine investment and advisory services, which mm. is what we'll mainly be concentrating on yeah. here. But then also Oeno Trade, which sells wines into hospitality, which are restaurants, bars, clubs, of course, mm. etc. Uh, and then Oeno House, a retail business. So Oeno House is a fine wine boutique with a private tasting room and alfresco terrace. And that's in the, the Royal Exchange in London, which is where you popped in for the interview, wasn't it? Indeed it was. Um, and I think that there are plans to, to expand that to other locations in due course. Now, um, this structure of the business is quite important because the various arms are relevant to the investment operation. Um, now, a traditional investment model might be uh, you buy the wine, then the merchant helps you to sell it on to someone else and it keeps getting traded. When you're ready to, yeah. when you and, feel it's gained and, and, enough value. And, or when the opportunity arises. With Oeno Future, when people want to sell, they look to place those wines through Oeno Trade or Oeno House. So it's more of a kind of, I don't know, a, a modern, a different take on a fine wine merchant than, than anything else, you know, with a sort of novel funding approach, 
geared to serving various sectors of the market um, at the same time as giving private clients a return on their investment. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think one other thing to flag up is that mm. they say they specialise in Italy, Spain and the Americas. Mm, yeah. So you can buy the more classic wine investment options through them, Bordeaux, Burgundy, etc. Mm. But they aren't just replicating what other perhaps more traditional wine merchants have always focused on. They are deliberately spreading their net wider. And I think that reflects a wider trend in the wine investment market of, mm. of increasing diversity yeah. beyond the likes of, of Bordeaux. A, absolutely happening right now. Now, Owen, I've got ambitious plans to expand all of this business globally. Uh, they currently have nearly 3,000 clients and the wider group manages about $50 million. They say that their managed accounts yielded our clients an impressive average return of 12.4% per annum in 2020. So, Lots of questions to ask. Uh, I first talked to Justin Nock, MW, who's Oeno's Director of Wine. And I asked him just to give us a bit of context on wine investment. I think it's got a very strong British link, first and foremost, partly because fine wine investment is something that people undertake over a long period of time. If people are buying wine to collect it, and seeking to make a financial return, it's something that really does take many, many years. We recommend at least five and probably 10. Um, also, the UK has a very strong repository of older vintages of wines. And I think wine investment often rose as an accidental outcome of over-enthusiastic collectors, more than people who really needed to make a financial return out of collecting claret and storing it. However, it has evolved over time into something that people do make quite good returns on over the long term. The classic model would be that traditionally you talk to your merchant and you find what claret you want to buy, you buy it on Premier, you pick up, let's call it two cases, you hold it for 10 years because you wouldn't dare drink it any younger than that. And by the time you're ready to drink that first case, both of them have doubled in value. You could sell one, reinvest the funds in the new vintage and you get to a point where you're effectively drinking for free. That was kind of the basis of it, but it's become much more complicated than that. Uh, or much more involved and complex. Um, there's no doubt that fine wine underpins the entire investment market. And the expectation is that people will make a financial return by buying and holding and seeing a capital, a capital gain. Mm. But we've also, we participate in that part of the market. Um, the traditional areas would be Bordeaux and then Bordeaux. <laughs> and then in the last 10 years or so, Burgundy and maybe Champagne have become mm. quite um, active and then now Italy and California are Yeah, and you make a particular well. point, Ueno, don't you, of, of, of looking, you specialise, so you specialise in Italy, Spain and, and America, so you're almost moving beyond Bordeaux. But can, I mean, Bordeaux's investable because it's kind of seen as a safe classic stock that will go up over time. Can, can you get the same returns from Italy, Spain and, and, and Americas? You can. I think the other thing that, yes, you certainly can. In fact, in some places like Spain, some Italian wines and in Burgundy, we've seen much better returns recently, driven by the usual things that underpin the investment market. One is supply and demand. So Bordeaux is obviously a very large production area. And because most of the consumers of fine Bordeaux are educated not to drink it when it's young, it means that the valuations often don't change for quite some time. And you need to wait until mature vintages start to be consumed and disappear from the market before you see significant appreciation. Um, whereas some of the fine wines from Burgundy we know are made in small production, so they, they appreciate quickly. 
Um, and then even the cult wines from California and Spain, they can be made in literally hundreds of cases or a few hundred cases, you know, one, two, three, four, five barrels, rather than the hundreds of barrels that um, producers in Bordeaux are able to produce. So, you know, why do it? Do you have to have a passion for wine to do this or can it just be purely for financial reasons? And does it, does, do the two experiences differ? From my point of view, it's started with the passion, but for the people who invest in wine in our company, many of them are just looking for a financial return. So they've become aware that wine is a, often seen as a relatively safe haven, particularly in turbulent periods on global financial markets. And we've seen those in the last two years. But that lack of liquidity I was just talking about can be a great defense for wine in that um, a share listed in a public exchange can drop in value by 20, 30, 40% in a few days or weeks, as we saw in March 2020 last year. But people aren't that desperate to sell their 2010 Latour. So you never see it drop by 30 or 40%. And if you did, the world would pounce on it and it would quickly go back to where it was before. So it acts as a very safe haven in terms of turbulent times. But it's also a very, I don't know, it's, just a, it's a novel area for people. I think some people really enjoy investing in wine because it sounds kind of cool like there's no doubt there's bragging rights amongst mates to say i know i've got cases of uh i've got cases of mouton or i've got i've got a full selection of you know 2017 drc or i've got some uh contorno monfortino that's quite nice um but people have a lot of different reasons for investing in wine so what, what tips would you have for someone thinking of investing in wine first thing is you have to think about the time horizon and be honest about it because we are sometimes led to believe or we might think we can get a short-term return on wine. And if you do, it's probably more good luck than, than anything. I think you need to identify that if you've got, um, let's call it 5, 10, 15, 20,000 pounds as an example to invest, that is money that you need to be willing to not need for at least five years. Um, the second step is when you do invest in wine, just don't go for always the top wines from the top vintages from the top regions because that's what everybody wants and those wines are often the slowest to generate returns they can generate exceptional long-term returns but because everybody wants them nobody drinks them consumption doesn't you know deplete the supply and the prices don't change for very long and if you do need to sell and get your money back quickly they don't necessarily you don't necessarily get your money back because you've got transaction costs so the second thing I would say is make sure you diversify and look for more liquid wines to have in your portfolio. And the one area we've found works really effectively in this way is champagne. And people don't think champagne is an investable wine, but surprisingly in the last 12 months, Grand Marc Champagne has gone out of control after a lull at the start of the pandemic. People cannot get enough of it. People have found a reason to celebrate. Perhaps just being alive is, is one good enough. And, uh, and, and it, it's in very, very high demand. Mm. But the thing is, if you've got the grand marks like Krug or Dom Perignon or Comte de Champagne from Tattinger, every restaurant in the world wants that on their list. We can sell that quickly. It's got very, very high mm. liquidity. So it's a lovely wine or set of wines to have in your portfolio to give you, let's say you need a little bit of your portfolio back mm. in the next year. Have some champagne so you can... Lovely idea. And aside from uh, Bordeaux, Burgundy, you know, champagne, are there any other either regions or producers that you'd cite as being sort of really up-and-coming stars of the future that might be sort of good to invest in now? Um, There are two approaches to this question. One is 
I think the classic regions are always going to be in demand. Okay, mm. we know that the brand the brands of Bordeaux, Champagne, Burgundy are super strong, and all wine collectors in the world want them. However, within those regions, there are definitely uh, people who have peaked, and at their top, there are rising stars. So in places like Burgundy, it's an ongoing quest to find the new producer, the next generation, someone whose wines aren't so expensive, but they've got access to great inherited parcels. So that's so it's more really like continuing to find the gold amongst all the the soil in the in the top places. And then beyond that, it's the, there's still so much to do in places like Italy. You know, Piedmont is definitely having a, a run. Mm. Tuscany is the Bordeaux of of Italy, and they've both driven the reputation of Italy. And it's been very exciting in Italy the last three or four years, but there's tons more to discover there as well. And I think we'll find things with old vines in other parts of the world. You know, mm. people are starting to really value some of their Venice treasures in places like Spain and Australia and California. I was going to say, and some of those the old US and, and Australia seem to be doing quite well. Uh, can be under, you know, under underappreciated. Just a more difficult question, maybe. Do wine investments ruin the game for normal wine lovers? There was there was a time before wine investment, and 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 now the top wines have risen stratospherically in price, and it means that they're largely unaffordable for for everyday wine lovers. It, can we blame wine investment for that? Maybe. Uh, it's a very good question. It's hard to know what's the cart and what's the horse. You know, those wines were already going up in value because. The quality has improved a lot in those top wines. You know, we're in a golden era for wine production in the last 20 or 30 years. And the top estates maybe weren't so investable in the 70s and 80s because their quality was so variable from year to year. But by virtue of having a run of good vintages in the 80s or 90s, being able to reinvest profits into better viticulture, better winemaking, all the best expertise, they're now making regularly great wines even in challenging years which unfortunately then starts to meet the definition of good investments to people who are not wine drinkers. They're looking for something that is has pricing power, that um, is reliable, that increases the value of real estate and all those sorts of things. So wine investment is the outcome of a series of people identifying the opportunities for, for wine in general. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's the future of wine investment? Another good question. I think we'll start to see... You pointed out a very good, a very good thing is that the top wines are becoming more and more difficult for people to to try. Um, I think there'll be more experiential type investment things, so where people buying collections or large formats or verticals, and you'll be able to put on um, rather than people saying, "I want to buy a bottle of a old Bordeaux and drink it," um, and let's say let's say that costs you a thousand pounds. Uh, instead, investors could buy an entire collection of wine over a vertical and put on a great event and sell tickets for a thousand pounds, but you get to go and try 10 or 15 or 20 vintages of those wines, right? And this is something that ties in very neatly to the modern world of we don't want things as much as we want things to do. So that's an area of interest. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we are trying to build lovely collections because then you can point the world at you and say okay let's do a whole vertical of uh, La Pergola Torta from Montevitini all Excella sourced many of them large formats and we'll put on a tasting for 100 people and that allows you to bring in the winemaker and do some sort of food event around it and you create some luxury package so you experience. sell that whole experience the whole experience 
So you're already starting to, to line that up. We are looking at doing some events from next year onwards that will allow us to start. So people will buy the, our collectors will buy the wine, mm. but we allow them to be liquidated by putting the wine out through these these types of events. Or, or you could do an NFT for, for, for that experience. I'm, I'm familiar with the term, but <laughs> I'm not really sure how to, uh, I'm not, not as up to date with those as you okay. are, Peter. So, so Oeno may be NFTs in the future, but we'll see. At the moment, it's, it's mainly sticking with the wine. Exactly. Um, Justin Knott, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure, Peter. Thank you. So I'm particularly clear on NFTs either. Yeah, me too. Well, are they? I think I was just trying to be clever. Um, you know, I, I don't think this is the time or the place to go into NFTs, which are, are non-fungible tokens, of course. Um, sort of like digital collectibles might be one way of, of saying it. But um, mm. they are starting to crop up in wine, though, aren't they? Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one friend different program yeah perhaps. another different yeah. program but it yeah. was fascinating to hear Justin's thoughts about investing in experiences wasn't it mm. rather than cases of wine per se do you know absolutely it's, it's a new angle but I don't know I could see it being quite successful what do you think mm, absolutely I mean everybody wants experiences these days don't they I think so I mean which has been impacted a little bit by COVID yeah, and stuff yeah well will, probably will, people want them even more now don't they desperate in the right way but what's nice about the experiences is, you know the investment in the experiences is that it focuses on the wines actually getting drunk and enjoyed rather than just being sold on and on and, and just never getting, never getting tasted. Never getting tasted, no, no. Which is, which is I, I like that. Maybe one for the next birthday present list then, along with my Hermes bag. It's, it's adding up, isn't it? These are expensive <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> now, anyway, you you also sat down with one of the portfolio managers from Oeno, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. So Sid McNamara Rajas Warren is actually Chief Portfolio Manager at Oeno Future. Uh, he deals directly with private clients and he's got more of a, a financial background. So I wanted to get his take on it everything uh is by way of a different sort of perspective now you know for this interview we'd moved into a room that wasn't so soundproofed so please bear with the bells chiming and the phones and the merry people clearly having a good time in the background um are they drinking our, our focus was epic absolutely they were. They were. And, and they're having a good time which good. is which is Perfect. what we were doing but just in a slightly different way anyway um i started by asking sid how he enables his clients to benefit from the fine wine market Wine in itself, and fine wine, you know, to be more specific. I mean, I'd argue it's been it's been a, a, an opportunity to create wealth for individuals since the time of the Romans. Uh, I think one of the key things to this, and I'm sure, sure you will know this better than most, you know, wine gets better with age, and people are taking advantage of that opportunity to say, okay, it's worth X right now. Ten, fifteen years down the line, it will be X plus. For those who are looking for an alternative asset, those who are looking for something that's a little bit more safe haven, to, to sort of use a buzzword, and, and not as risky as digital currencies or putting into the stock market right now, um, the fine wine market offers them an ability to actually invest in an asset class that is going to get better with age, and importantly, is a consumable asset. So you know, less and less of it will exist over time. And our job for them is to source the wines that we believe are going to help them in that, right? Uh, or in that aspect, let's just say. Uh, and then ultimately provide those exit models for them, the exit platforms. And our key exit platform is consumption. Okay. We're not trying to sell these wines onto another private client and, you know, they never be seen ever again. We have a way no trade set up to deal with hospitality and have hospitality clients and we have a way no house to sell wines through retail direct to consumers. If people are looking just to invest, what kind of return 
can they expect? I mean, you say on the website it's an estimated 10% return for private investors. How can you be so sure? <laughs> um, markets go up and down. You know, in 2011, the fine wine market, Bordeaux market, you know, went through the floor. Yeah. So what's your contingency plan, I guess, for that kind of thing happening? So one of the key things we as a company, especially on the investment side, like to do, and again, it goes to leaning onto the wine team and leaning on their expertise, is to make sure that we understand exactly from an investment strategy point of view what the client actually wants. You know, there are some people who are looking at this from a a super long-term perspective. You know, I'm going to lay down some wine so that my children can benefit from them or grandchildren can benefit from them. Uh, There are some people who say, right, you know, I can't really see myself investing longer than three years. So what we're able to do is match those, well, match the wines we place into their investment portfolios with the drinking age of those wines. Now, obviously, you know, a lot of fine wines have multi-decade aging capabilities, but some of them might take a little bit longer to get to their prime spot. Some of them are closer to their prime spot. So we try to make sure that we match that together with what the client actually wants so that when you look at it as an average, you do get to that 10%. Um, I would argue, actually, you know, as long as the client really explains to us what they're looking for, you can actually get somewhere between 10 to 15% return on investment when everything is solved. So when you look at it and you go, okay, how did my investment do? You look at the average over the number of years that you invested in and you can average it out between 10 to 10 to 15% per annum. Um, having said that though, there are some opportunities where some wines are exceptional. Um, so, I mean, a client of mine came on board in February this year. Awena House obviously opened up in July this year. And because of the retail aspect of the sale, because we were able to actually price it at retail price, between that very short period of time, between February and July, my client saw just shy of 10% growth on a case of Pavi 2010. Great vintage, great wine, in prime drinking age. Awena House wanted it. Perfect. You know, So he was very happy to, mm. to receive that and sort of use the funds again to to go again. And that's a very short-term investment. Very, very short-term. And I will never tell anyone that anything will happen that short-term. But with our unique way of selling you know, into consumption, mm-hmm. there are opportunities for clients to be shown that exit capability in the nearer term just to say, well, this wine is in demand. Yeah. Would you so like just to, to be clear it? about these extra strategies, you can either sell into restaurants or you can sell to, to people in the shop here. Or, exactly, yeah. Or, or buying to drink exactly. here. Yeah, okay. Is there a sum, a minimum sum that people should look to invest? For us, there is. It's £5,000 that we ask as a minimum. And the reason for that is diversity. I'm never going to put a client into one case of wine. And you can spend £5,000 on a case of wine. Um, But that over leverages you in one wine, one producer, one region, all your eggs in one basket. What we like to do is build a, a balanced portfolio different vineyards, different regions, different wines within those vineyards and those regions as well, so that you get to benefit from the spread of the great wines that are created around the world. Mm. Um, what are the what are the costs involved in this? Because sometimes we talk about wine investment, we say, yes, 10% growth, and that's great. We, we all like to focus on the good things. What costs can people typically expect? Because usually there are things like storage charges, insurance costs, potentially management fees in some instances and also commission on sales. I mean, what, what are the costs that people can expect? 
for us, it's very, very, very clear cut. So there are no management fees. Uh, and when I say management fees, those are the storage costs. Those are the insurance costs. Um, so you know, we'll, we'll store everything with London City Bond in their Venetech facility. Um, we get huge economies of scale because we've got quite a lot of wines that are sat there at the moment. So there's no point passing on those those costs to our clients. We want them to have the most seamless uh, and painless uh, process. Uh, so insurance and and the storage fees are covered by us. So sorry, just to, just to, you don't charge any storage fees at all. No, which is everyone charges storage fees. We suck up those storage fees for our clients. Okay. Um, the only fee we will charge is ten percent on a profit when they sell their wines, not on the wholesale, not on the original sale, just on the profit aspect. So what it means for us is that we are then incentivized to make sure that we get our clients in at the best possible price and find the best possible price at exit because then it's a partnership then mm. you know we we benefit from them benefiting so it really is a i do genuinely believe it it's one of the the fairest ways of offering the opportunity to any investor who's looking at the fine wine market it shows that we're not incentivized on the front end for us the incentive is on the back end. Mm. Well, I mean, but if I say by a case of Lafitte with you that I have every intention of storing for 30 years before I sell it, that's all fine. There's no storage cost. There's no storage cost. By that point, that Lafitte over 30 years would have gone up quite substantially. And so <laughs> the 10% yeah. then okay. would would actually come into, into a logical sense. It would actually work in both of our favours at that point. But in the meantime, you're paying quite a lot for storage. Well, storage fees when you have economies of scale aren't that large. Okay, all right. Interesting. Um, what about, let's touch on tax, the tax implications. Now, um, obviously, this varies around the world, and it varies from person to person. But generally speaking, it's often said that there's no capital gains tax to be paid on wine because it can be seen or can be classed as a wasting asset. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as I understand, that's actually set at 50 years in the UK. And mm-hmm. you can argue that a lot of fine wines are have a shelf life of significantly longer than that, so they don't necessarily qualify. What do you advise people about tax? Well, on the front end, there everything we do with our clients on the front end is VAT and duty free. So because it's in bond, because it's in bond, right. exactly. I always say to my clients that the rule of thumb is don't hold it for longer than fifty years. Now, when you do that, yes, you know, if you're if you're holding on to a, a decem, in fact, actually, if you're still holding on to an eighteen eleven decem, you can still drink it. Um, but if you're holding on to it for less than 50 years, then the rule of thumb is that you don't have to pay capital gains on that. However, if you want to hold it on for longer, then in, inevitably you're actually then going to come into inheritance gains uh, or inheritance tax. And so on that front, obviously, then any... IHT lawyer can advise you the best way you're making sure but it's, you it's both also, It's money. not just IHT, it's CGT as well, isn't yeah. it? Well, that's for when the children actually then sell it. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to think if I've got 50 years in me that I would I would like to sell it. But but what are you, are you saying that if even if it's a first growth and you sell it at 45 years, even if it has potentially 90, 100, 200 years shelf life, you could still class that as a wasting asset? As a wasting asset, yes. Okay. What about, um, are there any other sort of potential downsides of a wine investment that you would want people to be aware of that you would you would make people aware of um i mean as far as first one goes and first and most important it's really researching the company you work for or work with sorry in any investment 
doesn't matter who you are working with, you need to do a huge amount of due diligence. I think with wine, one of the things that has popped up in the past, though, is ownership. So there have been stories in the past where people have invested through companies and when that company has gone under uh, or names have changed or whatever it might be, they suddenly find out that they don't actually own the wine. Now with us, like I mentioned, all of our clients sign a purchasing contract. That purchasing contract gives them full title. So they are the only person who owns each and every bottle of wine that is in their portfolio, no matter what happens to the company. The other thing about wine investment, again, it goes back to what I mentioned before, is is making sure that the wines that are being placed in your portfolio match exactly what you want from an investment strategy. Go, let's go to Lafitte, Lafitte 2020, great vintage, great wine. You're not going to be able to sell that really into consumption for at least eight years, if not longer. I would never place that into a client's portfolio who said to me, Sid, I really want to only tie up this capital for three to five years because I can't comfortably sell that for the maximum amount of profit in that time frame. So it's just making sure that you are listened to as an investor, that what you want out of the investment or what you want at, want your capital to do has been listened to. And then with us, obviously, we sit down with some of the you know, brightest minds in the world of wine to devise portfolios that match exactly what the client wants. Now, fraud and fakes are a big issue in, in the world of fine wine. Um, what do you do at Oeno to, to fight fraud? You know, you say you confirm the authenticity of every bottle that passes through your hands. That's quite hard to do. It, it, it can be very hard, yeah. Uh, I mean, you've got a dedicated anti-fraud department that look at everything that is of older vintage. Let's be honest, an older vintage of wine, you know, is something that potentially could be uh, fraudulently made. So there are various techniques that dedicated group will actually inspect all those bottles. Now, when it comes to the wider influx of wines that we bring into Aueno, we try to work as far as possible, where possible, directly with the vineyard. So from doing that, you know, if you couldn't trust a vineyard, who could you trust? But, you know, by doing that, we we cut out the potential of a middleman. I mean, I believe it was towards the end of last year, where Italian police, it could have been in this year actually, but Italian police um, found a counterfeit Sasakai ring. Two things. One, horrible, because obviously a lot of people got caught out by this. Um, we certainly would never be purchasing through anyone we didn't recognize. So on that front, we weren't affected by it. Secondly, and this is a very weird uh, byproduct of it, all of a sudden the market realized there were actually a lot less bottles of Sasakai out in existence than there were before, which meant that there was a bit of, could have been a bit of a jump in the Sasakaya price as well. So I'm not saying fraud is good, but if you are utilizing the correct people, if you're utilizing the correct companies and the provenance of what you are holding is precise, those sorts of bad experiences, bad stories could actually end up benefiting you in a very weird roundabout way. What very brief pieces of advice would you give for someone looking to to invest in wine? Research. Research, research, research. Research the companies that are out there. Research the people that can offer you the ability to enter into the market. So essentially what you're looking for is a company that understands you, can understand exactly what you want from your capital, and ultimately 
through huge amounts of due diligence, somebody you can trust. Okay, that's always going to be a key thing with any investment, certainly with wine, is that trust. Because with that trust, you ultimately can build a strong relationship with the person who is trying to help your capital grow. Sid, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. No storage fees. Mm. Now that is quite innovative. That's a bit of a game changer, isn't it? Interesting. Um, but just to say, on the subject of costs and uh, tax, particularly uh, off the back of the interview, you know, we should we should add that everyone should do their own due diligence on that. It's essential to check before diving in. Um, because, Ask the questions. Absolutely. And this can be very personal. Um, so you need to weigh up all the different factors involved. Here. Yeah, absolutely. So by way of summary, what would our top tips be mm. when it comes to wine investment? Okay, so to kick off, I'd agree with Sid. I think that the, the key, the most important thing is to find the best, the right merchant, the right company to work with. Um, for you. For you, exactly. Make sure you trust them, that you feel comfortable, that they're reputable and do check all charges or costs in advance, you know, including what we say in that. Yeah, um, well, storage charges, storage definitely. Storage charges, if they apply. Commission. Yeah, selling commission, really important. Insurance, any yeah. other management fees. Just ask, what are, what are all the costs? What are all the costs, yeah, that, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and the exit strategy is particularly important. It's not just one thing, buying it. You need to be able to sell it. How does that process work? Mm-hmm. Um, what next? Well, I would say don't be impatient. You know, you really mm. need to allow a minimum of five years to see a proper return on investment. Yeah. Um, mm. And you know, and while you're doing that, take an interest. You know, you'll yeah. you'll get so much more out of it. Um, but the idea is it, it should be fun. You know, research the market, mm. do that, mm. um, and listen to podcasts. Oh, there we go. You there got that go. one in. Well done. Little plug in there. <laughs> okay, but I think you know, almost following on from that, you know, double up, um, double up on your investments, and maybe drink some. You know, so don't just buy one case, buy two cases, and maybe you can sell one and drink the other. I don't know. Um, I think it's so much more rewarding when you get into this, isn't it? Mm. Um, and, and it probably helps with the next, going, yeah. next bit of advice, which is you know, take the rough with the smooth. You know, good and bad things happen. But they do in all investments, don't they? Really? Of course, they anything. Do. In really interesting is going to have ups and downs. Totally. So, you know, hopefully you'll have more of the former than the latter. You know, it's not all plain sailing. Um, and, but I think, you know, to maximise the upsides, getting involved actually enables you to reap the benefits even more. You know, mm. that you've got to see it as a bigger piece than just financial gain. And that way you'll get much more out of it if you take an interest, live the lifestyle and, and enjoy it for stuff beyond the financial gain, then I think it becomes something much more magical. So if you'd like to get in touch with Oeno, then please do via their email info at oenofuture.com or you can find out more via their website, oenogroup.com. That's all we have time for. Mm. Thanks to Justin Nock and Sid McNamara-Rajaswaran. Thanks to you for listening. Cheers. <laughs>